Thank you. Well, thank you, Kenny. And I think I've known Kenny for that long also, so we and, and Nina. Uh, I started this journey, uh, like many of you, uh, with the recognition that we've evolved down a flawed path. I call it a cul-de-sac. I don't think it's a dead end, but it's the path that really relates to almost every aspect of how we connect to the planet. This path has been based on really some outright myths, and I think this audience knows them better than most, but they go to the heart of how we govern ourselves. The myth that waste is an acceptable byproduct of our economic systems. Waste doesn't even occur in nature. The myth of a place called away, where we send our waste. If you know where that is, I'd love to know. <laughs> the myth that our Earth is infinitely resilient to handle whatever abuse we heap out, and of course, we heap out plenty. The myth that the Earth is actually a subsidiary of our economics. None of us actually think that way, but that's actually the way we behave. And the myth of externalities, and if you slept through Economics 101 like I did, let me just remind you, externalities are those direct consequences of our economic behavior that are things like a national obesity crisis or a national diabetes epidemic or cancer epidemics or climate change. They directly result from our economic activity, but because they're not on our P&Ls or our balance sheets, they therefore don't exist. No one's accountable. Nobody's responsible. And all of this reminds me, when I think about these myths, of uh, my very favorite quote from Winston Churchill, who said that uh, success is the ability to move from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> now, when we started, it seemed to me that capitalism was really the source of all evils. I need to tell you, I went into this with a very anti-business approach. And, and really, if you think about the history of agriculture, going all the way back to earliest civilizations, it's always been about taking, taking soil, taking water, taking habitat, taking away farmers' rights, taking away the rights of the yet-to-be-born, taking away the rights of consumers to safe and healthy food. And it was my partners and my recognition that we evolved following these myths down this cul-de-sac that led us to found Stonyfield with a very simple and basic question. Is it possible for business to be part of the solution and not part of the problem? And 27 years later, like a lot of other wonderful people in our community here, I can tell you the answer is unequivocally yes. We can really truly create win-win-win-win-win commerce. I call it win to the seventh. We've proven that every stakeholder, all seven of our key stakeholders, our farmer partners, their animals, the planet, consumers, our employees, our family and their families, our shareholders and our retail partners can all win. And let me just give you a couple of quick examples. At Stonyfield, we now support, as, as uh, Kenny just mentioned, we now support 1,750 organic family farmers at Organic Valley. This is a deep, uh, long-standing relationship for us. This last year, we actually bought our one billionth pound of milk from Organic Valley. Our milk purchases, yeah, that was a big number. We, we're, we're good with that. Our, our milk purchases alone this year will support over 180,000 acres of organic farmland. What that means, just milk alone, over 9 million pounds of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer will not be needed. Over 425,000 drug treatments to animals are not going to be needed. We'll avoid over 185,000 pounds of insecticides and herbicides not needed. And we focus, thanks, and we focus, it's a start, and that's kind of the point of my talk, and I'll come to that. We're focused on the farmer's profitability. More than anything, we want, to be sh we want to show that unlike the traditional model of abusing farmers who are, let's face it, in our, in our society, family farmers are basically an endangered species. 
And so unlike, um, unlike following the, t the typical pattern, we are completely focused on our farmers' productivity and profitability, not just the dairy farmers, but with the dairy farmers, for example, we fund trans transitions. When farmers need to convert, as you know, it's an expensive cutover. So we fund them through that transition. We provide technical assistance on the farm for manure management, for veterinary assistance. We fund local feed mills so that they can get their feed and grain milled locally and milled uh, efficiently. Organic Valley farmers through us receive 60 to 100% more money per hundredweight than do conventional farmers. And, and, and they earn at the bottom line nearly twice as much as conventional farmers. By the way, organic, you may well know this, but organic animals live longer. They live nearly twice as long. So it's a benefit uh, all the way around. We also buy about 30 million pounds of non-dairy ingredients. Obviously in the yogurt business, there's sugar and there's fruits and cocoa and so forth. And we've created grower scorecards and toolkits to try to educate and motivate our ingredient growers to try to help them understand about sustainability issues and practices. We've developed a greenhouse gas emissions toolkit and a fair labor practice toolkit so they can actually, uh, in order to qualify as a Stonyfield supplier, you actually have to go through this toolkit, go through this survey, and we va validate that your workers on the farms are actually being paid fairly. With our organic bananas, as an example, our banana source is a cooperative of, of small family farms in Talamanca in co coastal Costa Rica. By paying them a premium price for their produce, we keep over 100, 100 families not only out of poverty, but actually earning fair wages, giving value to an agro-eco farm, farming system that is the exact opposite of the banana republics that we've, most of us uh, know that we've created in these countries. Our, thank you. Our sugar is a great example of an absolutely magnificent agro-eco economic system. We grow uh, sugar on 35,000 acres in Brazil and through green harvesting, you know, the tradition of growing sugar is that you burn the fields before you go in and harvest. Sugar, sugar obviously requires a lot of photosynthesis, so you get a lot of leafy matter relative to that amount of economic material, which is the cane. And, and in our infinite wisdom, we go in and we burn these fields, we burn the grass, sending it up into the atmosphere in the form of carbon, which is one fatal error also at the same time sending any nutrition that's built up in the topsoil up into the atmosphere, also wiping out biodiversity uh, so that we have to start from scratch literally every season. Our partners completely green harvest. The soil underlying our sugar operation is never for one second exposed to the erosive effects of wind or water. Literally the, the, the matter is sprayed, is shredded and sprayed out and so there's three, four feet of duff sitting right there. There's 189 species of mammals and birds and wildlife that have returned to these fields since, since uh, we switched over to organic 15 years ago. It's been a 90% reduction in pest damage. We've had t the topsoil carbon content underlying these fields is now almost equal to the forests that were there when the colonists first came in and carved them. There are zero organophosphates in the groundwater running through these fields. It's an absolutely extraordinary ecosystem and they've had 10% yield increases over when they were conventional since they converted to organic. So, so, when, so when you hear the myth, and we hear it often, 
Organic can never feed the 9.2 billion co-inhabitants we're going to have in 2050. Forget it. I can tell you from the 100 commodities we buy, from the milk to the sugar to the cocoa, we've shown either increased yields or the same yields ever since they've switched. But when you look at a total life cycle, a cradle-to-cradle point of view from uh, total resources in, resources out, organic totally kills. It absolutely blows it away. We've gotten a 50% reduction in the cost premium of organic over conventional just because of improving the profitability of these farmers. We've been able to basically profit share with our consumers and, of course, with the planet. In our operations, we have something. I'm, my actual background is in climate change. Uh, back in the 70s, I was studying the causes of uh, advancing causes of tree lines around the world. And so we've developed a carbon footprint that governs everything we do at Stonyfield. It's a methodology where we literally look at every single function. And our top nine footprints running from the milk, the cows, it's actually the burping, and I'll come back to that in a second, uh, to, the, um, to the ninth largest, which is our employee commuter miles. We've devised nine different teams that actually um, are cross-functional teams made up of marketers, engineers, finance people, salespeople. And these nine teams are completely focused on reducing those nine footprints. They're bonused and incentivized. So for example, I mentioned the cow burps. We've actually developed, and it's actually a fairly serious problem. Methane, as you know, is 24 times more impactful as a global warming gas than CO2. And cows react to, the, to our fill, filling them full of corn and soy the way any of us would react to something that we don't like. They burp. Uh, they're not carnivores, they're herbivores, and yet we've somehow sort of missed that boat in the interest of productivity. Their lives are shorter because of eating this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. You know the whole story. But the point is, what we've done this year is we've, uh, three years ago, is we actually began substituting out corn and soy in place of high omega-3 grasses, basically giving the cows what they're supposed to eat. And the net result has been up to 25 or 30 percent methane reductions. 30% uh, increases in omega-3s. What the vets are telling us is possibly another 10% or 20% increase in the animals' lives. When we had to build a wastewater treatment plant at Stonyfield because we had exceeded the capacity of our local system, we ran head-on into another myth that you all know very well, which is the myth of that the way we treat our biological waste is we believe in this myth that the solution to pollution is dilution. And of course, what that means is we take our biological waste, we oxygenate it, we agitate it, you know, we mix it into water and we send it to that place called away, which is the rivers, which leads to the hypoxias, which is killing off every major estuary in the world. And in my case, I found that if I built a traditional, conventional wastewater treatment plant, that failed system, I was going to generate one truckload of sludge every single week. Now, obviously, I didn't want to do that. I went to the local authorities and I said, well, what do I do with the sludge? I'm in New Hampshire. They said, oh, it's very easy. You send it to Vermont. That was, you know, that was their definition of a way. And so I'm picturing Ben and Jerry's in Vermont saying, well, let's send it to New Hampshire and, you know, maybe we could do these midnight runs and exchange our sludge or, or you know. Anyways, we didn't want to do that. So we built an anaerobic facility, a uh, facility that generates no sludge. Well, in fact, suppo supposedly there's a truckload of sludge every three years. We've been running it for four years. We have yet to produce any. Uh, this is an anaerobic system. It produces a gas that actually helps to run our facility. Labor, energy, water, inputs have all dropped by 50, 60, 70 percent. This system costs $600,000 more than a conventional system to build, and I had it paid off in the first nine months. So my wastewater treatment plant, my wastewater treatment plant is making money. It's a source of profit. Um, we have developed endless of these under these MAP teams, endless of these savings. But the net result, and here's my punchline, is that in three years, our carbon reduction savings 
And by the way, I'm talking in the range of 45 to 50 percent reductions in our overall footprint, even while growing. We're now actually at 360 million in sales. But those savings have generated $7.8 million in actual dollar savings. That's created 46 jobs through the recession. Not only did we not lay off anybody, unlike every other manufacturer, uh, conventional manufacturer I know, but we actually added jobs. And it was funded by our sustainability efforts. So I, I'm here to tell you, thank you. I'm here to tell you that the myth, the myth that you can't, everyone cannot win is over. We, we have the tools, we have the examples, and if you just pause for one moment and indulge me and understand the, the traditional myth of consumer products is very, very simple. It's make the product as cheap as you possibly can, and think of Coke or Pepsi. There's nothing cheaper than sugar, water, and corn syrup solids. You make it really cheap so you ex extract a huge margin, which you use to buy lots of media to blast us with reach and frequency, lots and lots of messages. And the net result of that is that supposedly we become aware of the product and then we become um, we try it, and then we have a repeat trial, and then we purchase, repeat purchase. The end goal, all the way over here, the holy grail is loyalty. But what we've proven at Stonyfield, and frankly the entire $26 billion organic industry, is that you don't have to make food cheap to get loyalty. If you do it right, if you build it, they will come. We've had co a compounded annual growth rate of over 20% now for 20 years. It's an extraordinary story. I'll tell you how I know about this uh, from one little anecdote. I was in Florida two years ago. I was standing at uh, Publix supermarkets. I was holding a competitor's cup, and I was reading an ingredient, and I'm still not sure what, the, what it was. And a little old lady came up and tugged me in the elbow and said, young man, someone your age really should be eating the Stonyfield instead. <laughs> and it was great. It was like a religious experience, you know? So. I said, well, I said, well, why? She obviously didn't know who I was. She said, do you know that they give 10% of their profits to environmental causes? Do you know that they were the first manufacturer in America to pay farmers not to use synthetic growth hormones, that they made their plant zero emissions with offsets? I said, whoa, 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 how do you know all of this stuff? And she said, well, quite honestly, uh, my husband died of colon cancer six months ago, and the girls and I, she was referring to her bridge club, uh, we want to be around for our grandchildren. We want to see them graduate and get married and so on. So we read all the labels that we see out there. We go to the websites. We check out these companies. And I've fallen in love with this company. Of course, I hired her on the spot. Um, <laughs> and, and how did she know this stuff? Well, she knew this stuff not because we've spent tons of money on advertising, but because we've used, for example, our lids, the tops of our yogurt, to talk about the nonprofit partners, the, 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 this, the, the, the various groups that we're partnered with. Uh, when Al Gore was going off, and we weren't sure if Al was going to sign the Kyoto Global Warming Accord, some of you may not remember, we published his email address on our lids and said, send Al an email, tell him to do the right thing. He got 165,000 emails. Uh, I sent 150,000 myself, so I know about this. Um, but we talk about the causes that we care about. When the Gingrich Congress was coming in to slash fund, you remember the contract for America? I call it the contract on America. Uh, but they were talking about slashing funding for clean air and clean water. We published a lid that said, Congress, have you flipped your lid? And when you flipped it over, it said, we believe in an efficient government, but not at the expense of our children's futures. If you vote against the planet, I won't vote for you. And 15,000 of these lids made their way to Capitol Hill. Now, I, I, warn, I want to tell you one little uh, funny thing that happened to us. We had been trying with the lids. It doesn't always work perfectly. We've been trying to get our yogurt onto Capitol Hill for many, many years. When Nancy Pelosi became a majority leader, we finally got it in. Unfortunately, the week our yogurt was delivered to Capitol Hill was my 
the, the week of my annual rant about campaign finance reform, the, the lid that week said on the top, in politics, the cream doesn't always rise to the top. Um, <laughs> So I have, this, I have this wonderful sheet for when they rejected my yogurt and sent it back to me. Uh, the sheet says, uh, the yogurt was too political for Capitol Hill. I love that line. That's just the best. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I want to come to the point uh, here because I, I want to talk about more than Stonyfield and bring this to, around to us. Suffice it to say that our employees uh, have won. They've had uh, fantastic jobs, full health benefits, sabbaticals after five years, pay, two months of paid leave to go off and, and, and refresh and come back. Our shareholders have obviously benefited enormously. Our consumers we trust are benefiting and so forth. So we've proven a win-win-win-win-win model, and we've, but it hasn't been overnight. It's what I call a 27-year overnight success. And this is where I really want to turn uh, as I, to share uh, with you that, you know, beyond our own success and the success of our industry, the, the, the really incredible news is we're at 25 to $26 billion. I promise you, the idea of using the words organic and industry when I started, it was, you know, you couldn't. It was us and our seven cows and our teepee and our wet goat, you know the whole deal. Um, but today, um, we are an industry. We are, this movement has become an economic powerhouse. That's the good news. The bad news is that we're 4% of total U.S. food. And the, bad, the worst news is that the rest of the world copies us in our habits. So today is unlike any other point in the last 30 years. And I would simply say to you that we have the answers to all, of, all that ails. As America needs jobs, as Kenny said, we've got them. As farmers need hope for sustainable incomes and earnings, We've got hope. As our nation's health condition threatens to drive us to bankruptcy, you know, one in three children born after 2000 is going to be a type 2 diabetic. We didn't even have the words type 2 di diabetic when I started in business. It was called maturity onset diabetes, but now it's happening with kids. 63% of us in America are either obese or overweight. Uh, uh, obesity has overtaken smoking as the leading uh, cause of the uh, 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 highest cost, $148 billion will go to fighting the problems of obesity and toxicity and cancer epidemics and so on. You know all of this. But as, as, our, as these problems threaten to bankrupt us, we need to expedite and ratchet ourselves now to the next level. We need to bring our influence up and we need to do it now. And I don't care what we're talking about. We could talk about any of the major issues, toxins, hypoxias, water, oil of the 21st century as we call it. Uh, climate, um, cancer uh, trends, any of these, we don't have another 30 years. We don't have the 27 years that we've gone through. We don't have another couple of decades. It has to start happening now. And I don't have to lecture anybody here about these issues, but the key point that I want to get to is it really does mean that we've got to get to scale. We've got the science. We've got the data. We've got the proven economic models. We're just not getting the messaging out uh, and there's no wonder when you look at the special interests and where the dollars go. So I want to just speak in my final portion here about what we can do to drive this scale. And I want to be, be very, very clear. Scale does not necessarily mean, as I hope I've illustrated you, that the farmer has to be screwed. Quite the opposite. With scale, with efficiencies in my operation, that's why I'm able to support my farmers at this high level, 63% more than what they would get conventionally. So, I want to just quickly cover a couple of uh, key things that I think we need to embrace. And to understand the issue of scale, let me, d let me drive home a couple of quick stats. 
One half of 1% of U.S. agriculture land is organic right now. That's what we're talking about, okay? There is no money in the federal budget for organic transition, the most expensive step that farmers have to take. The research, as far as the research piece of the pie, 1.5% of the over 2.5 billion annual federal subsidies uh, investments in, um, in research goes to organics or sustainable, okay? $8.5 billion per year goes to subsidize conventional crops, the very same practices that are making us sick, warming the planet, creating hypoxias, et cetera. The federal government has not conducted a single survey of pesticide use since 2001, even though we now know we're putting out about four pounds of pesticide for every American man, woman, and child right now. And again, there's no mystery. I don't think I need to pretend, nor everybody here understands. The, 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 the special interests rule our country. The five largest agricultural interests in Washington have spent $28 billion in lobbying since Barack Obama took office, $28 billion. Monsanto has spent 15 of that 28. So again, scale does not have to be at the expense of the farmer or the earth, but it does require that we, to get to scale, we urgently re-examine our behaviors, our beliefs, our priorities to take our effectiveness to the next level. And so, you know, let me offer five quick suggestions. One. We need to be activists wherever we shop, whether it's at the farm, the CSA, the farmer's market. We need to be activists. We need to pull others in. We need to be like that Florida lady, frankly. We could all take a page out of her book. What is stopping us? I mean, grab somebody who's not buying this stuff and just show them the way. Help them. Take them by the hand. It is as simple as that. The power of one is the most powerful force on the planet. This Stonyfield exists because millions and millions of people have exercised that power. Second, we need to be sure in our activism that we're being credible and evidence-based, not just emotional. Data is on our side, and data is immensely powerful, but only if it's unassailable. And to ensure that, we need to be able to challenge even some of our own myths. For example, local, obviously, we, local is immensely important in the big picture of what we're talking about here. But, and local is critical on many counts, but, but climate is not one of them. And I know this is a sacred, uh, this, is a, 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 this, this conversation could take hours, but let me just underscore to you that the footprint of transporting food is de minimis. It's in the low single digits, no matter what the commodity, compared to how it's grown. Stonyfield did a study many years ago that's been publicized where we found that we could have, if we had wanted to, we could have imported milk from New Zealand or, I or uh, Ireland to the U.S with 40, 50, or 60% less carbon footprint than buying it locally. Now, why is that? You say that's insane. It's because it's 100% grass-fed, the way all dairy should be in these countries. And what happens is the cows don't produce as much methane. They don't burp as much. And you don't have to go through the entire carbon footprint of growing grain, threshing it, uh, treating it, et cetera, et cetera, all the land use problems that go with, with, with grains. Another big myth is that recycling is the holy grail, is the ultimate thing to be doing. Recycling means we failed, folks, to reduce or reuse. In a true cradle-to-cradle -cradle economy, there won't be any recycling because we'll have eliminated it at the front end. Scale, and there's, a huge, and there's a huge carbon footprint to recycling. Don't fool yourselves. Uh, we've been as active in, on the front lines as anybody with Recycline and TerraCycle and others, but when you take back the packaging, shred it, melt it, reform it, remold it, and then downcycle down it, there's an enormous carbon footprint, probably negative. 
Third, scale also speaks to another really key issue, which is that we cannot allow food, organic to mean food for the elite. And this is probably our greatest, our greatest single challenge here. But the only way, the only way to get food affordable and, and make it accessible for billions without screwing the farmer again is to get to scale. And of course, it means attacking another myth, which is the American sense of entitlement to cheap food, which we all know here is not. We're paying for it somewhere. And, and we're paying for it in a big way, and our children are certainly paying for it. But we also can't be naive that a premium, anything above 10 to 15% for organic, is just makes it un unaffordable to en enormous amounts of our fellow citizens. And so this means if we really believe in the real promise of organics, we need to see it everywhere. And that means Walmart, and that means airports, and that means schools. Stonyfield just developed a 48-pack of small cups that makes it now competitive with conventional yogurt at schools. And we're actually into school systems now because they don't have to make a price trade-off anymore. That's made possible by our purchase purchasers. That's made possible by our consumers. Fourth, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. The, for, the journey of 10,000 miles begins with a single step. You will soon read or hear, if you haven't already, this week, Stonyfield announced an amazing breakthrough for us, which is that we converted all of our multi-packs, our six-packs, over to plant-based packaging for the first time. We're the first, first manufacturer, but, but I hasten to say, and we did it very simply because we got a 48% reduction in our carbon footprint. Incredible, incredible numbers. But I will hasten to tell you, it's corn. And we all know, you've seen food, and corn is not the desirable crop. It's the one that we can afford now. It's the one that keeps us from having to add enormous amounts. So we've done offsets of GMOs. We've actually invested in creating an entire technology. And I understand offsets with climate, or I often refer to them as a morning-after pill. You know, I, I screwed up last night, so I'm going to offset. But in the transition, <laughs> in the transition to a green economy, we have to walk through the gray. This is not easy stuff. In our case, we've actually done, um, you know, th this, our own, in our own little way, converting these cups has saved, is going to save this one year 4,400 barrels of oil. 48% reduction reduces Stonyfield's overall total footprint by 9%. We've done a, created a third-party validation of the GMO offsets. We've literally taken GMOs out of the system by paying our, uh, Iowa corn farmers who are using GMOs not to, so we've made ourselves GMO neutral. And, and most importantly, and most importantly, we've made this completely open source to all of our competition. We want YoPlay and Danon to do this. Why? Because that will expedite the evolution from corn to what we really should be using, which is ag waste, uh, switchgrass, even ultimately, potentially, algae. And finally, and just I want to underscore this really quickly. If all U.S. dairies, just to underscore that point, replace their... their um, uh, polystyrene with PLA, the annual CO2 emissions would be equivalent to 1.5 million barrels of oil. That's 40,000 tractor trailers that would be taken off the road. And finally, and let me close with this. I've danced around this, and so let's just say it. We need to engage. We need to engage politically more than ever before. Campaign finance reform is probably the single most critical, essential problem of our times. The system is broken. Unless you, unless you don't believe it, unless you don't understand it, um, go tomorrow at 4.30. There's a wonderful film out called Priceless. It's going to be shown here at the Moving Id Images Festival. They're just showing some snippets of it. Check it out. Understand our power. We have now, and it's not well, well understood yet, we haven't been able to promote this 
uh, actively because we don't want to alienate the other side. But we've now got 178 co-sponsors to date and leadership support at the House for, for something called the Fair Elections Now Act. This reform will use targeted federal dollars to expand the purchasing power of us as individuals, ordinary citizens, so we can effectively compete with special interests. What it, what it does is it, it promises a four-to-one match for, for donations of $200 or less. So it now allows us to ratchet up and leverage up our power as individuals. This is the most critical issue of our time. All five of these areas are absolutely essential. And I thank you for your, for your attention to any of them. The bottom line here, and I'll, I'll close with this, uh, and you've been terribly patient with me, because uh, there's a lot of information here. But the bottom line here is uh, maybe best expressed by Gandhi, and maybe you know this quote. He said that uh, anyone who thinks they're too small to make a difference has never been in bed with a mosquito. And, <laughs> you know, in New Hampshire, we know a lot about mosquitoes. I think it's our state bird. Uh, <laughs> This is what we need to do. We need to buzz. We need to champion and celebrate all of our amazing progress to date. But what we really need to do now is get started in a big way to, to retaking this planet for us and for future generations and all species. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.